We're going to turn to John chapter 19. Um, my name is John T. It's great to welcome you. Um, if this is your first time at Globe Church, it's terrific to, um, to have you here. Um, we, we, by the way, we put our chairs like this um, deliberately because we think that being church is a family and we love to gather around the table. We're going to share communion later. We love to gather around the table, not sitting facing forward listening to a lecture, but actually gathering, being able to see each other and being able to encourage each other. Um, so that's why we have our chairs like we do. Um, we're going to turn to John chapter 19. If you need a Bible, there's some at the back. But page 1087. And I'm going to start um, reading from verse 16, which is sneaking slightly back. Um, it will pick up onto the screen in a second. But verse 16 says, Finally, so after Jesus has been tried by the religious leaders and he's been tried by the political leaders, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Well, what do you make of that? What do you see as you hear those words? I want to suggest to you this afternoon that what you see is love. Here is love. And that might surprise you because it might be that you look at that and think it doesn't sound very much like love. This is not like any love I've ever seen. When you go to the cinema to watch a romantic comedy, this is not the sort of thing that happens. This doesn't appear to us to fit into the category of love, but this is love. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this is love 
more than you have ever seen anywhere else in the universe. Here is love. Behold this love. Do you think God loves you this afternoon? In fact, no, do you, not do you think it. Do you know God loves you? Are you confident about God, the creator God? Are you confident about how he feels about you? Do you know he loves you? Perhaps for some of us, we're like, yeah, of course God loves me. That's sort of his job, isn't it? I mean, if he doesn't love me, what else is he doing with his life? If that's you, it may be that you've grown too cool to seeing what it really means that God loves you. But there'll be another group of us here and we say, oh, I don't know if God loves me. I, I, I don't, perhaps I don't even know if there is a God. And if, he, if there is a God, how would I even know if he loved me? And I think about the things I've done this week and I think, well, I, I can't imagine that he could possibly love me. Well, this afternoon, I want to ask you to let God show you how much he loves you. To show you. You see, what we just read, listen to it again. Here is why I started at verse 16. We read, finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. And so you've got this scene where this Roman ruler, Pilate, takes this man, Jesus, and hands him over to be crucified. But you've got to understand that this comes in chapter 19 of John, which means there's 18 chapters before it, which means you can't ignore what's already happened in John's gospel. I'm not going to cover all of it, but there's one thing I want to show you which puts a completely different spin on the passage that we're reading. And John wants you to know this before you read this. So let me remind you of the most famous verse in John's gospel. It's the verse they hold up at football stadiums. John 3.16. Listen to these words and then compare them to what I've just read from John 19 verse 6. Here is John 3.16. It's on the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this is the story that John is telling, all right? It's not just a little story about a man who happened to die on a cross. This is the story. It's the story of God for God. It's God's story. That is the creator God, the eternal God, God. And it's the story of God and his love. Do you want to know what John's gospel is? It's a love story. It is how much God loves the world. And when John says the world, he doesn't mean this nice planet. He goes, oh, well, I love the world too. I, you know, I like watching David Attenborough. I like those programs. I love the world too. No, when John means the world, what he means is a place that is dark. A, a place that is turned away from God. A place that deserves to be condemned, not loved. So a world that has said to God, we don't want you, and yet John says, here is the love story of God. He loves a rebellious world so much that he does what? That he gave his son. He gave his only son. He gave his beloved son. God gave his son. 
And all the way through John's gospel, we've seen that in order to understand who Jesus is, you have to understand that he is the Son of God, which means his Father in heaven. And you have to understand the Father and the Son. Now come back to John 19. Listen to verse 16 again. Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Put that together with John 3.16. Are you following? Put it together. Who gave Jesus to be crucified? Pilate did. Bigger picture, the Father did. Here's what I want to show you this afternoon. What we are reading is the Father giving his Son. Yes, Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. He was the human agent, but beyond it and bigger than it and deeper than it and more profoundly, it is the love story of the God, the Father, who gave his son, who handed his son over to be crucified. You want to know how much God loves you? Despite all that you have done, despite all the ways that you have ignored God, despite all the ways that we have treated others wrongly, despite all our wrong. God said, the Father said, I will give my son, my only son, my beloved son, to be crucified for you. That is why I say that John 19, here is love. You have to understand that we're reading the Father giving the son to be crucified. And it isn't just in John's gospel. It's all over the place. Listen to this. This is Romans 8. You ready? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, also graciously give us all things? Do you hear it? The father gave up his son for you, for us. That is the love of God. He did not spare his son. And so here is this great love story of God for his dark, rebellious world that meant that he would give his darling, beautiful, precious son to be crucified. So with that in mind, we're now going to read this account. We're going to work our way through this account. And John tells us four things. I think these are quite surprising. They're not the things I think I would have chosen to pick, (laughs) chosen to zoom in on. But we're going to work our way through. You're going to see them. He seems to be quite interested in the sign above Jesus' head. He seems quite interested in Jesus' clothes. And then he seems quite interested in Jesus' mother. And you're like, why those things? Well, that's what we're going to see. I think it's because John is wanting you to see just how much the Father loves you just how much he gave. Let's get into this. The first thing then, as as John paints this portrait, this picture of Jesus handed over to be crucified, the first thing he wants you to see is that Jesus was condemned. He was condemned. The father, let's keep remembering this, the father gave his son to be condemned. Let's look down at the text. 
The soldiers took charge of Jesus. This is verse 17. Carrying his own cross. And so Jesus, as he goes to be crucified, they place upon him the wooden beam. It seems most likely that the the upright beams would already be in the ground and the the, the criminal, the condemned criminal, the, the cross piece would be placed on their shoulders and they would stagger through the city bearing this overwhelming, crushing weight upon their shoulders. Remember, he's already been flogged and now he's staggering under the weight of a cross. And as he carries this cross, he goes out to the place of the skull. I mean, isn't that vivid? It's a, a, a sort of a, a mountain that's in the shape of a, cro- uh, of a skull, a place that is a place of execution, a place of death. And there they crucified him. There they crucified him. That is breathtaking. It's so simple. There's no big embellishment. There's no big lavish kind of oh, big build up. John just says they crucified him. There's a weightiness to these words. There's a simplicity to these words. This is not an embellished, sentimental retelling. Just a brutal statement of facts. If you could have seen Jesus that day staggering along, you would know that he was a condemned man. He's walking the walk of death. You'd know where he's heading. As soon as you see someone with a cross on their back, you know he's going to die. Here is a criminal heading for execution. We're final. There's a slight fascination with this, isn't there? Like, the whole thing about death row and criminals on death row and their final moments and the walk from the cell to the final point of execution, that final walk. There's something fascinating about it, something poignant, something weighty. That's what Jesus is walking, a final walk, the walk of a condemned man. And they crucified him. And they crucified him with two others. He wasn't the only one condemned to die that day. There were two others. There was one on his left, one on his right. He's put in the middle. Because to all the crowds, it's so obvious, here's a condemned man. Just like that condemned man, just like that condemned man. He's condemned. But if you were a Jew watching, you'd see even more. If you were a Jew watching, you would see more than just a man condemned by the Roman courts because your law would tell you something else. Deuteronomy chapter, um, wherever it's gone, on my sheet, Deuteronomy chapter 21 says this, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So as Jesus is put on a cross, on a wooden tree, as Jesus is hung up with his arms outstretched, you'd say not only is he condemned by man, he's condemned by God. He's a cursed man. 
That's what you'd see. You've got to ask the question, right? Why would the father give his son to be condemned? Well, that's why this is an act of love. Because Jesus was innocent. In fact, John could not have made that more clear. Pilate has already said four times, there is no basis for a charge against this man. There is no basis. This man has done nothing wrong. This man does not deserve to die. There is an innocent man condemned. Which makes you ask, why? Why? Well, in order to get the answer to that, you have to go back 700 years before to a man called Isaiah. Isaiah explained this. 700 years before Jesus, listen to these words. This is Isaiah 53. It says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, listen to this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Why is Jesus staggering under the weight of a wooden cross? Why is Jesus crushed? Because that's what we deserve. And the extraordinary message of the Bible is that God's great plan, God's great love story, was not to send a rose and say, hey, guess what, human beings, I love you. His message was, I'm going to send someone to save you. And the only way that God could save, so here is me. I want you to imagine that on my back is a massive great rucksack. You know what it's like when you do like Duke of Edinburgh, and you're like, and you've got all your super noodles for the, like, the week, and it's all in your back, and it's heavy, and you're staggering along under the weight. And so the Bible says that is our condition, because we have done wrong against God. We are condemned. There is a burden that weighs us down. There is a punishment that rests upon us. We, we are under condemnation. And the Bible says that one day we will die and we will face punishment forever because of this weight that burdens us. And we stagger through life. And yet, God loves you and yet you carry this burden. He has to deal with the burden. The burden has to go somewhere. He can't just ignore it because you've done wrong and he's just. And so what God does is he says, I'm going to send my son, my beloved son, my precious son, my darling son. And he will come into this world and I will give him over to be condemned. And so what happens at the cross is that all of my sin, all of my burden, all of my condemnation is lifted off my shoulders and is placed on him. It was my sin that he was staggering under the weight of. My sin. It was my sin that caused him to stumble. It was my sin that pressed down on his shoulders. It was my sin that led him to be condemned. 
my sin that led him to die. So when I read, they crucified him, I don't read that as a kind of, oh, that's a shame. I read that as the most supreme act of love. He did it for me. He lifted my condemnation. And I would be amazed this afternoon if there weren't people sitting in this room who feel burdened, who feel a weight of condemnation. I'd be amazed if there aren't people in this room who don't feel guilty. Perhaps there's guilt for things you've done in the past. Perhaps there's condemnation that hangs over you because of people's disapproval. Perhaps people have pointed the finger at you and judged you and said you're not worth it, you're not valuable, you don't matter, and you're too bad and you're too sinful. Perhaps it's fingers that point from within you that say, I'm too bad. And God says, here is love. Here is love. I gave my son. I gave my son. And he takes all of that guilt. And it may be that for someone in this room today, for the very first time, you say, I want that. Jesus, would you take my condemnation? He, he offers that to anyone who will believe in him. But perhaps you do believe in him, but you still, you still feel the burden. Can I say to you this afternoon, he loves you. He gave his life for you so that you don't have to carry that burden anymore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned anymore because he was. You're not guilty anymore because he was. You're not under punishment anymore. You're not under disapproval anymore because he was. He staggered for you so that you could walk free. For some of us this afternoon, you need to take hold of that and believe it. Believe that he's dealt with that thing that still crops up in your mind. That place where you still feel condemned. If you doubt that God could ever love you, the Father gave his son for you to bear your condemnation. The Father's placed all of your sin all of that weight upon the shoulders of his son. And it wasn't some kind of weird, cruel act because the son willingly took it. He said to the father, I'll do that for them. This is love. Here is love. He was condemned. But the second thing I want you to see is he was lifted up. He wasn't just condemned. He was lifted up. Look at the next thing we're told. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. And then John goes into this big thing about this notice. He seems very excited about this sign. It's like, John, why have you given us so much? Isn't it weird? There's nothing about nails. There's nothing about hammer. There's nothing about blood in this bit. There's nothing about the kind of all, all the embellishment. But he does go really big on the sign. Why? I think John loved the fact that as Jesus died... Above his head was a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Because in that moment, as Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he is lifted up as the King. This is his coronation. Johnny started the service by saying, you're going to see a King in action. That's exactly what you're seeing. This idea of being lifted up is a big idea in John's gospel. 
But let me just, um, I came across a cool thing this week. I thought it was cool. Um, do you know what a contronym is? You know, right, you know synonyms are words that all sort of mean the same thing. Contronyms, do you know what they are? It's one word that is both itself and its opposite. These are cool, right? These are really fun, right? So, for example, right, um, dust, to dust. Think. Dust means, oh, look, there's some dust. I'm going to clean up those little particles. Or it means I'm going to sprinkle icing sugar all over my cake. Opposites. You're not as excited about This is disappointing. <laughs> I genuinely thought you'd be on your feet and, like, amazed. Never mind. Um, fast. Right? Stuck fast, held fast, or fast. Right? They're the opposite. No? No. Okay? I've got loads, but we're just going to crack on if you're not interested. <laughs> Here's my point. In John's Gospel, when John talks about Jesus being lifted up, he's got like this double meaning to it. He's lifted up, humiliated on a cross, lifted up to be ashamed, to be exposed to the world, hung up as a criminal, and yet John wants you to see, no, he's lifted up. He's exalted. You see, when they wrote this sign above Jesus' head, right? When Pilate had this, right? Imagine Pilate. He's had this big run-in with the religious leaders. Pilate didn't really want to kill Jesus. He was a bit annoyed about the whole thing. Imagine him writing this sign. You know, I imagine it was sort of like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. This will annoy them. I'm going to write a sign. And so he writes a sign, and it's a mocking sign. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Right, Nazareth, if you don't know this by now, in John's Gospel, Nazareth means nowhere. Nazareth is like the most ordinary, dull, unexciting place in all the world. <laughs> not doing it. I'm not. <laughs> Every time we get to this, right, I always get in trouble by making comparison. So I'm not doing it. I'm not. I'm really not. So, um... Nazareth, it's like this place up, up north um, in Israel, and it just doesn't matter, right? It's a nowhere place. It's nowhere. Jerusalem's where it matters. You've got Nazareth up north, and you've got Pilate going, here's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the king of the Jews. What a joke. That's the tone of this thing. It's a mockery. Jesus is lifted up as a joke. How can anything good come from Nazareth? It's ridiculous. It's like Joe Bloggs, King of England. It's that. Ridiculous. And, and the, the, the Jewish leaders, they get upset. And they say, oh, don't write that he's the king of the Jews. Don't write that, Pilate. And you imagine Pilate with a glint in his eye going, what I've written, I have written. I am the master of this situation. I will write whatever I want to write. And the big joke is that he's written what God wanted him to write. He's written exactly what God wanted. Pilate thinks he's in charge, but he's not. Because as Jesus is lifted up in mockery, the king of the Jews, he is lifted up in glory. Here is the king. Behold the king. And you may say to me, well, he doesn't look like a king. Oh, yes, he does. He absolutely does. What are kings supposed to do? 
You see, this is the trouble, right? We've got such a rubbish view of kings because our kings don't do what they're supposed to do. What is a king's main job? What is a king supremely supposed to do? Not sit around in a palace. Not turn up at functions to kind of have like someone sing a nice song about them. A king has one job, and that is to save his people. That's what kings do. If there is an enemy, the king goes in the front and the king fights the battle. That's their job. The king doesn't stay home. The king is out front. Because actually the image of being a king is very closely related in the Bible to the image of being a shepherd. Jesus has already said in John's gospel, I am the good shepherd. Because he is the king, the shepherd, the shepherd who goes into danger to protect his sheep. The shepherd doesn't go, oh no, I'm a, there's danger, I'm going to hide behind my sheep. The shepherd goes into danger to die if necessary for his sheep. Here's the king. The father gave his son to be the king who was lifted up to save you. Because that's what he's doing. Remember, he was condemned for you. Remember, he took the punishment you deserve. Here is the danger that's coming, the condemnation, the danger is coming. And Jesus says, I'll take that. I'll stand in the way because he's the king. Here is love. You tell me another king like that. You tell me another king who would give their life like this. There is no other king. And so here is Jesus lifted up to die as the king. And then thirdly, John moves on from the sign to talk about his clothes. Here is love. The father gave his son to be stripped. Isn't that surprising? Look down with me. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided him into four shares, one for each of them, the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece. Let's not tear it, they said. Let's decide by lot who will get it. So here's the scene. Here is Jesus gasping for breath. Crucifixion was a brutal, desperate way to die. Here is Jesus, and they're at the foot of the cross, ignoring him. He's just another criminal. They've killed hundreds of criminals. There's no value in him anymore. There's just some clothes. Let's gamble for his clothes. His clothes are stripped off him. He's naked. He's humiliated. And they laugh and they gamble and they take what he can, they can. But here's the weird thing, right? This isn't the first time that we're told about Jesus' clothes in John's gospel. In fact, it was just the night before. The back of John chapter 13, get this, right? Jesus took off his outer garments. He took off his clothes. He stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. Because when Jesus was stripped at the cross, he was already, he had already made that decision. And so Jesus, and, and, and that picture, right, oh man, we've we got to get this, okay, look. So that picture of Jesus taking off his clothes in order to kneel down and whitewash his disciples' feet. 
that was a picture of the bigger thing that Jesus did. You've got to see the bigness of this because remember, Jesus is not just a bloke. He is the eternal son of God, father and son. Before Jesus came into this world, he was robed with majesty and splendor and glory. And Jesus chose to take off those clothes in order to come into this world. To be born naked as a baby. He chose to humble himself, to take off his clothes of glory and come into this world. And then he didn't choose to wear the robes of kings and princes. He just wore the ordinary clothes of a humble man. And then he took off those clothes in order to wash his disciples' feet. And so how appropriate that at the moment when he dies on the cross, he's stripped. And the soldiers think that they're in control, but they're not. This is always what Jesus came to do. Jesus laid aside his glory, all of his glory, in order that he might die for you. Let's keep putting this together. He was condemned so that you can go free. Because he is the king who fights for you and saves you. The king who lays aside his glory in order to die. And as they gamble, you see, it's so clear that they're not in control. As John remembers them gambling for the clothes, he thinks, ah, that's what God said would happen. Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before Jesus. Psalm 22 says this, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So hundreds of years earlier, someone had written a psalm about their clothes being stripped and divided among them. A psalm that talks about having your hands and feet pierced. A, a psalm that talks about all your bones being out of joint, about being thirsty. And Jesus is simply fulfilling the plan to save us. He gave up everything. That's my point for you. That's how much he loved you. Here is love. He gave it all up all of his glory. He was stripped of all of his glory and ashamed. You do understand, right, that in the Bible, clothes are a big deal. When human beings first sinned against God, their instinct was to make clothes or to cover themselves, and God made them clothes to cover them so that we might not be ashamed. Here is Jesus who is now stripped ashamed in order that we might be covered. As Jesus is stripped of his clothes, he gives you clothes to wear to cover your shame. So you don't need to be ashamed anymore. So we've seen that he was condemned. He was lifted up. He was stripped all according to God's plan. And then here's the fourth thing. And can I tell you, this, this moved me more than anything else this week. He is just so beautifully kind. He is so kind. Despite all that's happening to him, all the brutality and the noise, all the mockery and the shame, all the humiliation, as he looks out on the crowd, he sees his mother. He sees Mary. Can you imagine her standing at the cross, watching her son, her oldest son, be ripped to shreds and 
humiliated and die. And Jesus in this moment is so tender. He looks at her and he is concerned for her. He cares for her. Not a hint of self-pity, not a hint of anger, not a hint of, oh, look at me, just for her, his mother. And so he says to her, woman, and that's not a, I know that we'd get in trouble if, we, if I talked to my mom like that, I'd get in trouble. It's, it's a polite way of speaking. It's not a derogatory term. Woman, here is your son pointing to John, one of the disciples, and then to John, the one whom Jesus loved. That's how the, the guy who wrote the gospel. That's how he talks about himself. What? Why was that funny? I don't know. Never mind. I get very paranoid. Um, so, <laughs> I'm right. Okay. So, John. It's all right. It's all good. Everyone, everyone's fine. So, Mary. Look, you've got Mary and John. Right there, they are. Mary and John. Jesus looks at his mother. Here's your son. Here's your mother. And says, and John takes Mary into his home. And you get this little glimpse into Jesus' heart that he's not some cold-hearted king who says, fine, I'll die for them. Don't expect anything more. He cares for his mother in that moment. And I just want you to know this afternoon that his heart hasn't changed because Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive today and he's still a king who's beautifully kind. He still cares about you. And he sees your grief and he sees your pain. And it's not like, well, I'll die for you, but don't expect any more. He dies for you and he loves you and he's kind to you. How will he not graciously, if he, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Look, here's the whole thing, right? Let's, let's wrap this up. Let's land this and let's worship. Here's the great love story. Here is love. The father gives his son to be condemned. The king who fights to save you. The king stripped of all his glory that he might clothe you. And in the midst of it all is so beautifully, beautifully kind. You tell me another king like that. You tell me anyone in the world better than that. There is no one better than Jesus, right? No one. No one comes close. No one in all of human history, there's no one better than Jesus. There's no one I'm more proud of. There's no one I want to worship more than Jesus. He's my king and I love him. And I hope you do too. Because he's so great. And we're going to worship him together. And if you're sitting here this afternoon and you think, I don't know really what I make of Jesus. This is love. This is love. I want to encourage you to read more, learn more, and then turn to him and say, Jesus, I want you to be my king too. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then we're going to sing. Father, we, we thank you for the extraordinary moment that we've read of this afternoon. That extraordinary moment when you, Father, gave your precious son to be condemned for us, to be lifted up for us, to be stripped for us, to be so beautifully kind, even to people like us. Father, I pray that each one of us in this room would know not just that Jesus died, but that he died for me. Pray that every single one of us in this room would own Jesus as our king and would worship him and trust him. 
And we ask it in his precious name. Amen.